more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Jenna Fryer. And I'm Hannah Stewie. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and, po- and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. This episode of Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and tonight on the show is our as our guest, is Madeline Enriquez. Maddie is a second-year master's student in food science and technology in Dr. Joy Waite Cusick's Food Safety and Quality Systems Lab. Welcome to the show, Maddie. Hi, thank you for having me. To start off, do you want to just give a brief elevator pitch of what type of research you do here at Oregon State? I study dairy microbiology, so I'm looking at cheese spoilage and the microorganisms that may cause that. Very cool. Um, What microorganisms do cause that? That's a hot topic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The microorganisms I'm specifically looking at are P. wasachensis and a certain type of Clostridium species. So what do these microorganisms do in cheese and why should we be concerned about them? Well, as a consumer, I wouldn't be as concerned about them, but as a cheese producer, I would be. So some of these microorganisms infect the cheese-making process in many different ways that is speculated, and they basically interact with proteins and nutrients found in the cheese and cause gas. And why specifically is gas a problem if you are a cheese producer? Well, it creates like a really bad taste and smell and blows the packaging. It's overall just not good. And it is seen in a lot of national scale um, in the cheese grading. It's seen as a defect. So a lot of people cannot sell their cheese at a high quality rate. Hmm. When you say cheese Grading. Mm-hmm. There's like a, a tier system for cheeses? Yes, it's set out by the USDA. Oh, I had no idea. So is there like S-rank cheese? <laughs> or like... Yeah, it like goes through like part of the alphabet and a lot of these people who are looking for just bulk selling their cheese, that's more for how the grading system works. It's really interesting. So like all the cheese that like goes to like school systems and stuff gets goes through this weird grading technique by the government. Huh. Cool. So 
if you have these gas defects in cheese that's going to impact this cheese rating scale that I just found out about. <laughs> um, and that's obviously a problem for dairy producers. So what's the solution then? That's something that people are debating right now because there isn't a clear-cut solution in general. It's just happening and people throw it out and they don't talk about it. So how do you solve a problem that no one wants to talk about? Hmm. So I think an important point here is uh, outside of food science, most people don't know how you make cheese. So how does one make cheese and where in the point of that process do these microorganisms either cause a problem or get incorporated? All right, that's a great point. Um, (laughs) So cheese starts from milk, from the udder, and the moment it leaves the cow's teat, it can become infected with any of these organisms that could cause gas. The milk then usually goes into a bulk tank, picked up by a milk truck, and then brought to a facility. There, it's then pasteurized in most cases, and in some cases, the microorganisms die if they were already in. If not, they can then be contaminated after pasteurization, which is another thing we're looking at. (laughs) But some of these, the pasteurization activates them through spores, so it's a hard way to kind of be like it's not a catch-all system so sometimes the pasteurization just overall harms the cheese not saying that we shouldn't be pasteurizing anything but it's like it'd be dormant if it wasn't pasteurized but then now they're activated then later on the cheese usually gets cultures added to it which are good And then added rennet and all these other techniques, depending on what type of cheese you're doing. Then it's usually molded and then aged. And then usually in this aging process is when you'll start seeing the cheese blowing effect happen. And like I've had packages literally explode when I'm trying to replicate this. Like there's the sheer amount of gas is ridiculous. How aggressive is this exploding that you're talking about? It, it's 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 a lot. Like You'd be very concerned if you were a customer and saw that at the store. That's why most customers never see that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it will like break cardboard boxes open, which is like another shipping issue. Like it's just it's a massive issue for if it does happen. What a story to hear, though, that you have like a shipping truck driving down the highway and it explodes because of exploding cheese. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of cheese packing houses that talk about like all of a sudden they'll like hear a bang and it's just like one of the cheese things exploded. <laughs> That's some powerful cheese. So there's a lot of points of this process where these microorganisms can get incorporated. So what strategies are you currently evaluating to help like remedy it? So I'm looking at two main areas right now. Um, We're looking at how different aging temperatures. So once the cheese has been molded and packaged, basically, like how you store it in that like right before you can sell it stage, if the different temperatures could hypothetically change if it blows or not, which we are seeing some positive results right now, but it's too early to say. Is it just like pushing it? A little bit or is it like actually mitigating the issue 
And the other thing we're looking at is bioprotective cultures. So if we add some cultures in after pasteurization on top of our other ones for that we usually do for flavor, could that protects the cheese from these other microorganisms that are causing the gas. So does this uh, like gas defect exploding cheese phenomenon happen in several kinds of cheeses, specific kinds of cheeses? Is this universal? Should I be worried about the cheddar in my fridge? Cheddar <laughs> is actually one of the ones that does explode, but... <laughs> <laughs> It's the semi-hards to hards you see it on more. Soft cheeses are never stored long enough to really see these issues. And if there is an issue, you'd be more concerned about why did it blow mm. after it being like two weeks of being made. That that would be more concerning. Everyone's like, there's probably more underlining issue because mm. you don't age soft cheeses. So there's got to be something really wrong Yeah, <laughs> if a soft cheese is exploding. Yes, majorly <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Don't eat. <laughs> Biohazard. <laughs> and please contact Maddie if you have an exploding soft cheese. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so you mentioned that you're looking to help some, like smaller to medium-sized manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Why are you focusing on these specific producers? These producers can't really help themselves in this situation it's not like a major conglomerate I don't want to like name names but like larger scale cheese people that could then hire research to be done or all these tests to be done on their cheese these smaller scale people don't have the means to do that and these are the people that I feel like are being the most impacted like I don't care personally if a large corporation lost a million dollars on some exploding cheese but if a small producer was aging like their whole summer's worth of cheese and they all explode that's a major deficit to the that local cheesemaker right down the road from you and that could potentially put them into bankruptcy and I've known a couple of people here in Oregon that are having these issues and it's just really like all right, I'm helping them. I'm trying to get to the root cause. Let's figure this out together. And it just feels meaningful to give back in this type of way. If I could do it and not charge them, because I'm also not a trained professional, but I am in a weird tier where I can help, I want to do that. Uh, So how are you analyzing these cheeses? Are you just, like, waiting for them to explode, and then you're like, okay, let's what's up, or what other methods have you been using? We do just some generic plating schemes. We have a bunch of different types of augers we're plating the cheese on right after we make it, and then we then wait a little bit, and then we CT our cheese, which might be really weird, but the vet school is CTing the cheese for us, and then we're going through and analyzing all those scans to like monitor what's going on in the inside of the cheese because a lot of the times we can't see what's happening inside those cheese wheels when they're packaged, and once we open a package or a wheel, we're ruining that matrix. So we don't really we want to do like a non-invasive way to monitor because once we open it, we need to sample, and we're like, all right. Now what? <laughs> so just so people listening really mm-hmm. capture the full image of this, 
you're taking wheels of cheese yes and putting them into a ct scanner yes just like you would get if you were a person yes but these ct scans are made for large animals and not humans so <laughs> even <a> bigger sized <laughs> ct scan filled with cheese yes you live in a very interesting life <laughs> Yeah, it is quite the time when I come to the vet school and they're like, what, what you doing? And they like, <laughs> someone like looks in the window and it's just like 90 wheels of cheese on the CT bed and they're like, uh. <laughs> if you're curious what this looks like, please check out our blog post. There are images to help support this story. <laughs> yes, there's proof. <laughs> so you have these CT scan images. How do you like tell? Is it you can see like the holes and how can you tell the different wheels apart? Like, is it that differentiating? Um, we have a couple different ways that we're trying out to differentiate. Like right now I have like a hand drawn map that does not <laughs> do well of deciphering these giant scans going through. But we started doing these like little, I don't know if they're lead, but metal tape pieces so we can like do markers on certain wheels so we can get a better idea of what wheel we're looking at to orient ourselves on our map hmm. but on the whatever you call it the scans you can actually really see the gas formations and it's crazy like absolutely wild you're like that's in the cheese and you're like looking at it you're like i could have never tell is it like when you see the gas in there, is it like a significant percentage of the whole wheel or like a small amount of the wheel or does it completely depend on how far along it is? Yeah, it depends on where it is because we've also seen that the cheese forma- the gas formations within the cheese will look different based on what point it is in the gas defect. So like earlier on, it's like more like speckling and then sometimes they get like giant cracks and then sometimes they like literally turn into Swiss cheese. And we're like, what is going on in this cheese? And it also depends on the microorganism. So like we are noticing that there's like different gas patterns based on what organism could be causing it. And is it also different kinds of gas depending on microorganism? Not really. We're not really looking at the different gas types, but... There is some sort of mixture, but it's nothing that crazy or that significantly different. Mm -hmm. So if a consumer were to, like, cut open some cheese, it doesn't explode. It just, they cut it open, it's not Swiss cheese, and it has the holes in it. Should they be concerned, or is this more of just, like, a flavor defect? Like, I would not be concerned in any sort of safety aspect, um, I just be more concerned like why it's happening in general and most consumers most likely will never see this in their lifetime like they probably will go throughout their whole life without ever seeing a gas exploded cheese but absolutely completely safe I wouldn't be concerned if it was blown up but I'd be more curious on like why or like how to even make it to the consumer and does it taste bad <laughs> yes so like not something you want to eat i i would it, like my thing is if it smells bad it probably doesn't taste good <laughs> the smell test is good for all foods i recommend <laughs> you follow it in your everyday life uh, are any are you noticing any patterns is there anything 
you're finding conclusive with your research so far that you or that is looking promising to be able to tell producers? Um, it's really hard to tell right now since my trials take at least 14 weeks. So it's like, all right, I can see, but I don't know if it's just like slowing the effect or if it's completely stopping it. So I don't want to like go around and be like, oh, I fixed it. I solved the issue. When then we keep aging it out and then it's like 24 weeks, it explodes. And I'm like, oh no. <laughs> so your trials are, you said 14, 14 days, right? Weeks. Weeks. Okay. So that's a long time. Yes. Um, and you're making your own cheeses for these trials? Yes. How, it is a lot of work. How long does that take you? And how often are you doing that? We try and make at least once a week. But now with how our schedules are working, we're going to try and do twice a week. But the makes basically take three days per make. And it's you get 12 wheels per make which is not a lot in the grand scheme of things. And you're like, all right, <laughs> all this work for 12 wheels of cheese. <laughs> I got to do it again. <laughs> How many wheels of cheese do you think you've made at this point in your life? Oh, I have no idea. We tried doing that math once and we were over like 200. And we're like, <laughs> and we're, like we're not even like halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you really appreciate how much goes into like Seeing the cheese on the shelves. Oh, yeah. Of that. Oh, this takes many weeks and lots of milk and lots of time. And someone painstakingly making this cheese for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the back problems are crazy. Oh, no. <laughs> it's a labor of love. <laughs> so kind of pivoting into your background. So was... Small Maddie always like, I'm into cheese. My future is in cheese. Or what was kind of the aha moment that led you to grad school? There, There's a lot of things that got me on this <laughs> path. I originally applied to undergrad as like an engineer. <laughs> I then was like, that's not for me. And like I could change my major in some applications still. So I was like, I feel like animal science, like that'll give me a good basis. <laughs> and then I stuck with it. I was really, everyone was surprised. Like if I was changing it that late in the game, they're like, you're going to change it again. Actually, I stuck with it the whole time. I, animal science was great. I was mainly more focused in cows. I did showing. I was really involved with like cattle judging throughout high school. Um, then I worked on the university farm in Connecticut and then I started working in a lab. It was it was just a dairy microbiology lab. I was doing it because I already had all the previous like trainings done. And then I just kind of liked it. You know, you're like, oh my God, like I'm actually good at this. I understand this. This is my niche. It was just looking at how on-farm practices in production practices could affect the outcomes and I was like I could do this like I understand all of this and then I heard there was a, someone was looking for someone here at Oregon State I was like all right let me interview talk to a joy and we're here the rest is history 
That's so awesome. <laughs> and just as notes, you flew straight across the country to be able to do this cheese research as you're originally from New Jersey and did your undergrad at UConn. So. Yes, I was like, I get to make cheese for my grad research? Yes, I... Okay, I'll leave everybody I know, my family, my friends, and move across the country to do this. In the name of cheese. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I wrote down in my notes before the show, in my scrawling sketch here, it says, do I go cow or cheese? <laughs> yes, because I was also thinking, do I go more the cheese route in dairy microbiology, or do I go more the cow route? <laughs> So there is a side project that you mentioned <laughs> that may lead you to work a little bit more with cows than you may have anticipated in doing cheese research, if you'd like to comment on that. Yes, we are doing this kind of side project, but kind of not, on how udder hair treatments can affect blowing in cheese, which the first time I heard that, I was like, what? <laughs> And it's looking at how different, like, hair management techniques on these cows' udders could potentially affect the spore counts that end up in the milk. When you say hair management, (laughs) what does that entail? So, some farms just do nothing to udders, and they just leave them. They're hairy in the winter, not really hairy in the summer. And they just go through their cycle. Other farms, they shave their the udders and that's also a very normal technique and then there's also udder flaming and it's like a fast and quick way for udder hair management and they'll just go and like figure eight this blowtorch under the cow's udders (laughs) and like singe the hair off and they're looking at what happens to the spores because there's a whole idea about the milking procedures if these management techniques could prevent the spores from getting in the milk and I'm like what (laughs) I'm baffled by the idea that taking a blowtorch to a cow's udder doesn't hurt them in any way (laughs) I'm also like as someone who's worked on the farm I'm just like apparently that is for the cows that you can't shave and I'm like you think if I can't like just clip these cows I'm going to put fire near them (laughs) I was like, no, (laughs) that sounds like an awful idea. (laughs) So is the reason that you shave or flame or whatever you do to these udder hairs, is it for microbial reasons? Is that why farms do it? Or is it more of an aesthetic thing? It depends on the context. So just a general farm management technique, they might do udder hair management to help in the summer months with just keeping things like clean and dry to prevent mastitis, which is just, like, a bacterial infection in the udder. So, like, that is where it's common, but also especially in the showing rings and cattle judging, they do it a lot, so you can fully see, like, for lack of a better word, the assets of the cow. (laughs) So you can, like, judge them based on, like, what their udder looks like, all the different nooks and crannies of it. So it's not a crazy practice for people to do, like, I have shaved many udders in my lifetime, but I would never have thought it was for spore management. <laughs> so a kind of related question I have is, 
is milk in the udder itself sterile, I guess, and you only introduce bacteria or spores once it leaves the udder? That's generally the principle, but I'm still very cautious to like be like, yes, that is 100% true because there are some like instances out there that, especially if there's like a sick cow or some random occurrence, they're, they could be coming out bad. But most of the time, that milk is usually dumped and never, like, makes it to into any consumer pathway. But I basically, yes. For, <laughs> like, it's really hard to be like, yes, but. <laughs> yes, but with caveats. Yes. I feel okay. like that's very hard to study, like, yeah. in, the, in the cow still. Yeah. Like, it's really, like, once... It hits anything like in that last like inch of the T. Mm. You're like, all right. So if like the inside of that T area could also be contaminated, just the nature of how it is, it's just like a hole. So it could. <laughs> I'm like, how do I say this without being like, don't drink milk straight from the cow's tea because you could still get sick. But. <laughs> But, but it don't is. do that. <laughs> don't, don't do that. But <laughs> I feel like there are several reasons other than just that to not <laughs> go up to a cow and choose to get your milk that way. <laughs> like I've known people that have. That's why I feel like it needs to be addressed. <laughs> oh my god, I'm crying a little bit. <laughs> Okay, with all of these things being said, one of our traditions on the show is to ask, what is your favorite part about your research? Oh, that's really hard. Because <laughs> I love a lot of aspects of my research. That is why I love this project, because I get the cows and the cheese and the microbiology, hence why I'm doing this project. But I think the favorite part, I like working with all the local cheesemakers the best. If that answers the question. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, I just, I enjoy talking to them. I talk to them very often, too. Like, most of the cheesemakers in Oregon, I talk to at least monthly. And we, like, do little check-ins. Like, is there anything I could do for you? No? Okay. Well, what's up? How, how are the cows? How's the cheese? Or, like, or sometimes I'm having an issue, too. And no matter how many research papers you'll read... You will not figure out how to do this really niche cheese making technique. And I'm like, hey, like, I know you think I have all the answers, but I'm coming to you to be like, how do I do this? <laughs> and they're like, all right, we'll show you. Or they'll like call me and be like, all right, this is how you do it. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's so nice. It feels like very. I don't know. Like, what's the word? <laughs> we give it and we take from each other. And I think that is a big part of my project that I really enjoy. I think it's amazing how many medium to small cheese manufacturers there are across Oregon of their really spans the entire kind of cheese category. As I attended an event Maddie ran and mm. there was more cheese than I really physically could eat in one moment <laughs> that was just from all over Oregon and that's only scratching the surface. Yeah, it was like 14 samples of cheese we gave so you guys, and we really, and like, that was us cutting it down, and we're like, man, we really should have done a lot less, but we're like, how do we cut people out? Like, that just feels rude. Yeah, we're like, all right. be included on the next one of these <laughs> events, <laughs> just saying. 
They're really fun, guided <laughs> cheese tasting. <laughs> I think it's really cool that sort of like back and forth you have with the cheese makers because I think there's several like fields of science where you don't have that kind of interaction with quote unquote normal people. <laughs> yeah. I think it's super cool and super unique. Well, our second tradition is for you to give a piece of advice to anyone you want. It can be your past self, undergrads, fellow graduate students, any piece of advice you want. Okay. I thought about this. I was like, what is something I always like to tell people? I was like, I remember. I think all incoming grad students, current grad students, or anyone in research, like my piece of advice is start reading for fun. Like find a fiction book or something that you want to read yourself that has nothing to do with your research and read it because it'll make getting through all those like papers and everything you have to read for work so much easier. I think that was like a big thing for me was once I started doing that for fun, it became less of a chore doing it for work. Hmm. That's good advice. That is good advice. I'm trying to get into reading more and it's <laughs> not going too. well. <laughs> it's one of my New Year's resolutions. <laughs> Mine too. A book a month. Word. We got my one. <laughs> oh, I'm, be- I'm feeling ambitious this year. I'm trying to hit at least 50 books this year. Whoa. I was close last year. I did like 40 something. <laughs> wow. Oh, okay. Well, I got to step up my game. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And then the very last thing tonight uh, is you get to choose your outro song. So why don't you tell us what song you chose and a little bit about why you chose it? I chose the song Lovely Day because I did marching band in undergrad. And this was the song my senior year that we closed our show with. And it just feels like very emotional to me. I listen to it and I just think of all the good times. It's just a generally good song that I feel like a lot of people don't know it exists. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Yes. And Matt. without further ado, this is love. Sunlight hurts my eyes And something without warning love Bears heavy on my mind Then I look at you And the world's alright with me Just one look at you And I know it's gonna be Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends. <laughs>